Cambridge Analytica sought to identify mental vulnerabilities in voters and worked to exploit them by targeting information designed to activate some of the worst characteristics in people, such as neuroticism, paranoia, and racial biases. That was Christopher Wiley testifying before the U.S. Congress. Wiley was an employee of the firm the Trump campaign hired to work on Facebook, Cambridge Analytica, but then he became a whistleblower. Welcome to Bots and Ballots from Yahoo News. I'm Grant Burningham. You may have heard of Cambridge Analytica. They built dossiers about American voters based on data they harvested from Facebook's platform and then fed those voters ads and content on Facebook to try and get them to change how they vote using a mixture of AI and psychology. But can a company really Jedi mind trick a whole country? What if Cambridge Analytica is just an example of Facebook's platform working how it was designed, allowing anyone to find tiny demographics and connect them? My guest today is Corey Doctorow. He's a prolific science fiction author and an outspoken digital privacy advocate, among other things. To Corey, the real story is that Facebook has created a super invasive spying device without any checks. And that means Cambridge Analytica is just the start. Corey Doctorow, thanks so much for joining me on Bots and Ballots. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'm going to start with the biggest question I can think of for you, which is I covered technology and I covered politics. 2016 totally blindsided me in a lot of ways. Most of the people I talk to feel the same way. I'm wondering if as a fiction author, you had some glimpse of what was coming that the rest of us didn't. So I'll tell you, there's a kind of problem overall with with vigilance, right? With, with being concerned about stuff, which is that stimulus tends to regress to the mean. So we just tend to like get used to stuff. You get inured. If you look at all the different trends that are represented by the everything that happened in the last election, there's stuff like, um, well, the electoral process is really bonkers and, uh, you know, doesn't make a lot of sense and is subject to all kinds of security problems. That's a problem that isn't new, right? We've been talking about voting machines since Bush v. Gore and the effort to standardize a decent voting machine in America and the debate over over paper ballots versus these electronic uh, network ballot machines. And every territory where they had problems with their voting machines was a territory where they historically had problems with voting machines and shrugged them off. So you, you may have seen there's a lawsuit in Georgia about their 17-year-old voting machines that managed to count uh, 250% of all registered voters in some precincts turning out to vote. Georgia's voting machines didn't become a dumpster fire in 2016. Georgia's voting machines have been a dumpster fire that people have been sending the alarm about for like the 17 years since they were installed. They are garbage. They've always been garbage. The person who bought them was an idiot who was in dereliction of their duty. Um, so, you know, not a surprise, right? Voter suppression, gerrymandering, that's been on the horizon since the 2010 census. We could see it coming since the 2010 census use of um, red state legislatures to uh, redistrict. We didn't know all the details of how red map was being used, but we could definitely see that gerrymandering and voter suppression was underway. Facebook's uh, ability to invade your privacy and then do really creepy things to you, either directly or by selling services to other companies at shockingly low sums. That's the thing that privacy advocates have been warning about since MySpace. And so uh, I guess... You know, the thing that happened in 2016 is all these things crossed a kind of threshold where the 
previous alarm that we'd had that it subsided because human beings can't pay attention to stimulus forever and we, we stopped noticing it after a while, that it, it reached a new, a new threshold where once again it was something that we all paid attention to and uh, it, that made it all seem like it was happening at once. But, you know, to the extent that this all occurred in science fiction novels before the 2016 election, it was there because it reflected things that were going on in the world before the 2016 election. It, they didn't predict the future. They just predicted the present, uh, you know, in the same way that I wrote Little Brother in 2006 and it was published in 2008. It was about mass NSA surveillance. And I wrote about it after Mark Klein in 2005 quit his job at AT&T and blew the whistle on them for wiretapping the whole Internet. And that was on the front page of the New York Times for like 72 hours. And then people got distracted. And so in 2008, it felt timely. And then when the Snowden revelations happened, it felt more timely. And then every time we've had a mass surveillance crisis since, it's felt even more timely, not because I was prescient, but because I was attentive. I wonder if we could talk about the Facebook aspect of, of what you just mentioned. You recently described Facebook's business model as selling oily rags. Why don't you tell us exactly what that means? Sure. You know, I think that there's a story about what happened in the early days of the digital world that says that you had all these naive optimists who said, you know, the Internet is only going to be a force for good and we should spread it as far as we can. And anything you do with the Internet is obviously a force for good. People don't found organizations like Electronic Frontier Foundation, for whom I work part time, because they think that the Internet is automatically going to be good and they just want to get a nice seat ringside while it all happens. They found organizations like that because they appreciate simultaneously the awesome power and the awesome risk of the Internet. And so in the early days of the Internet, there were lots of people who could see that if you spied on everyone, you might be able to eke out some marginal gains from targeted advertising. Targeted advertising market is incredibly badly targeted. And the early days of the internet, there were plenty of people who said, you know, if we spied on everything you do, we could probably make some improvements. I mean, almost anything you can imagine would make an improvement because this performs so badly. But it took a, a special kind of sociopath in the form of people like Mark Zuckerberg to actually go ahead and do it. Because most other people who looked at it, took a look and said, you know, yeah, this would be easy to do, but the cost would be very high because if that data leaked or if it was misused, it could produce all kinds of really terrible outcomes. And Mark Zuckerberg was able to kid himself that either the good would outweigh the bad or that the bad was overblown or some combination of both. And so he went off and started this kind of original surveillance capitalism business. And, um, you know, a way of, of, of imagining what that dynamic looks like is imagine that like, a young, callow Zuck is sitting around in his dorm room at Harvard thinking about his parents' house and its garage full of uh, oily rags. And he goes, you know, people pay good money for oil. And although the oil in that oily rags is really terrible oil, and people won't pay very much for it, oily rags are free. And so if I don't have to pay to keep the oily rags safe, if I can just warehouse arbitrary quantities of oily rags without um, ever having to invest in sprinklers or insurance... Uh, I can uh, eke out some uh, tiny per rag profit and given enough rags, well, we're getting into real money. And that's what he did. And all along, people were saying, you know, if you just keep piling up oily rags, they are going to burst into flames. And he kept saying, oh, you know, you're, you're, you're a nervous Nelly. Why are you worried about, about these hypothetical fires? Why aren't you concentrating instead on all this cheap oil that I flooded the market with? 
And here we are, you know, sort of 15 years after he started the service, and everything is on fire. And we've gone back to him and we've said, you know, the tiny gains that you've eked out with these oily rags have always been swamped by the cost that you were externalizing in the form of not taking care of the safety of these oily rags, right? You, you didn't protect the data. You non-consensually gathered it. You sold it to other people for shockingly small amounts of money. You combined it with other data in ways that put the users of the data at risk. You forced your users into policies to make it easier to collect data, like the real names policy. That meant that the data became even more deadly. And now you tell us that if you had to take even the most basic precautions to protect that data, you would be unprofitable. And our answer is, you were unprofitable from day one. The only reason you were able to be profitable is we were all bearing the costs while you alone reaped the benefits. And um, that, I think, is the kind of oily rag business model in a nutshell. That problem was sort of personified as Cambridge Analytica, which seemed like this kind of Bond villain shadowy company making a lot of extraordinary claims about what it could do to manipulate people should be stated it made those claims to Ted Cruz and and were unable to deliver on them. Um, you mentioned in the article that Cambridge Analytica probably isn't the core problem here, or it's not it's not necessarily the only thing going on there. I think that to understand what Facebook does, you should compare the claims about what Facebook Analytica managed to do with what they claim they can do. So Facebook spies on everyone. And it makes two claims about that surveillance. The first is that by spying on you, they can figure out what you're interested in. And the second one is that by spying on you, they can figure out how to convince you of anything. And the first part is really obviously true. Like Facebook's primary value, both to advertisers and to users, is its ability to locate hard to find traits in large populations. So if you've got a rare disease or you want to track down people you went to high school with, or you want to find other people who will carry a tiki torch with you in Charlottesville, or you want to organize people to go to Standing Rock and protect the water from the pipeline, Facebook is a tool that will help you find these widely distributed but thinly distributed groups of people. So that's why advertisers like it, because like most people aren't going to buy a fridge most of the time. And so you need really fine-grained tracking to find people who have this very rare trait. And if you spy on people enough, you can probably find people who have correlates with fridge purchasing, like, for example, they just bought a house, right, or just renovated a house. And so that's a pretty good predictor of buying a fridge. That's really different from saying that I can take anyone in the world and convince them to buy a fridge by spying on them a lot, by building these dossiers and then kind of psyopsing them into buying a fridge from me. Um, we don't really have much evidence that that works. Now, there were, as it turned out, a bunch of Americans who were latent white supremacists who were willing to vote for a uh, liar uh, profiteer if he would promise to be mean to black and brown people. And they were pretty thinly distributed, but the electoral system was so gerrymandered and in such a fragile equilibrium that um, anyone who could even bring out a small number of non-voters stood a pretty good chance of, of winning some key elections because the things were really very closely balanced. And, and the only thing that, that guaranteed that balance is that most people never showed up and voted at all. And so Cambridge Analytica was able to find a bunch of latent Klansmen and convince them that Donald Trump was their man. And so you combine those people 
with Republican stalwarts who were going to vote Republican no matter what, and you get the majority that Trump needed to win the election, uh, the majority in the Electoral College. And so that's the story I think that we should understand about Facebook is that it's not a, a mind control ray. It's a surveillance system for locating people with hard to find traits. And the way that it can do that profitably is by externalizing the cost of that surveillance and making us all pay them in the form of the cost of identity theft and the lack of social cohesion and so on. And um, uh, it can keep all the profits from that surveillance. Facebook has kind of got two sides of a problem here, because on one hand, there's the data problem that you've mentioned. And then on the other hand, there's this content problem going on, which popped up recently with Alex Jones. Do you feel like they're making the right moves on content? So I think that the thing that I would quibble with you about is that the content problem cropped up with Alex Jones. The problem of Facebook and the other big platforms controlling so much of our civic discourse started years ago when they started, you know, forcing um, sex workers to use their real names or people who were trans to use their dead names or Cambodian dissidents to stop using aliases, which made it possible for the government to find them and round them up and torture them. And it was only when it went mainstream because it affected this this guy who's kind of a, a notorious, uh, you know, conspiracy slinger and hate monger that we started paying attention. But, you know, the, the lesson that we should take from this is that our system has become so concentrated, our, our media ecosystem has become so concentrated that four or five companies can in unison get together and make a decision that has an enormously adverse impact on the ability of anyone who gets out of good odor with them to communicate with the world in the future. That although, you know, Alex Jones can start his own website and he has his own website and he can use other services, everyone's on Facebook, even everyone who hates Facebook, because that's where the people are, right? That's why you rob banks, because that's where the money is. And that's a pretty disturbing thing that we've arrived at. You know, the, there's this traditional argument about free speech in the First Amendment that says, well, the First Amendment applies to the government making rules about speech, either rules that bind companies that operate private forums for speech, but also rules about who can speak in public places. But the thing is that on the Internet, on the one hand, we have no public spaces where the public speaks to one another on publicly owned platforms. Uh, the closest we come maybe is like, the FCC's comments portal, where you can leave comments. But it's it's not much as public forums go. And then the private forums we have aren't this giant pluralistic set of forums where um, if you get out of good uh, odor with one, you just move to the other. What we have is like five oligarchies that control almost all of our public discourse, and they have so much money that they have lobbied to make it almost impossible to start a competitor of theirs, uh, sometimes with the unwitting cooperation of the telecoms operators whose uh, opposition to network neutrality means that in order to be online, you're going to have to pay the kinds of monies that only the incumbents already have, which means that no one will ever get to challenge their hegemony. So now we have this situation where there's no public forum to speak in, and all the private forums are controlled by a handful of companies, and that handful of companies has inveigled the state into making sure that no one ever challenges them except each other. And, you know, that has really important speech implications. Even if, like me, you're not a big fan of Alex Jones uh, and you wish he'd crawl under a rock and die, 
the fact that five companies in unison making a choice can effectively make people disappear from the public discourse should really worry you, not least because historically it's been used against anti-fascist agitators, Black Lives Matter activists, trans activists, and people who uh, are, are activists and opposition members against the world's autocracies. So there's another argument going around on that, and this is something that's come up when I've talked to former executives at these social media companies and even people who just study this space, and that is that these companies have unfairly been given a license to publish things which would otherwise get them sued under the Communications Decency Act, which was passed in 1996. Do they have some responsibility for the content that they publish? Well, I think those are a couple of different questions. Um, the first one is like, is Section 208 a good a good thing? And the second one is, is there a responsibility, which is a big, broad question that covers legal and ethical and other and other issues. So Section 208 of the Communications Decency Act, uh, gosh, I want to say that it's actually Section 280. Now I'm having a brain fart. Uh, either Section 208 or Section 280 of the Communications Decency Act says that if you provide a platform where the public can talk to each other, you don't have an obligation to hold everything that uh, is said before it's published and have a lawyer investigate it to see whether it's defamatory or infringing or obscene or in some other way unlawful speech. And it's really hard to argue with that, right? In, in this regard, the platform's are not entirely analogous to, say, a newspaper, which accepts letters from the public and makes a choice about whether or not to publish them. They are also simultaneously analogous to, say, a diner, where people get together to talk to each other, or a library, where people rent out a room to talk to each other and have a community meeting. And in those circumstances, you can immediately understand why it would be completely unworkable and foundationally undemocratic to create a system in which you went to the diner and before you could say something to your friend that might be overheard by a third party and therefore offend them, you the diner would send over a lawyer and you would write down what you're thinking of saying to your friend and pass it to the lawyer and the lawyer would make an up or down judgment about whether or not um, you were uh, going to uh, violate some anti uh, some, some bad speech rule and then you would be allowed to say it or not. And not only would it just be a lawyer, but because all the really good lawyers would be working for the giant corporations, and there's like a finite number of lawyer hours remaining between now and the universe, this would be some Dumbo also ran, failed the bar seven times, mail order diploma lawyer. And their expertise would be really narrow, and they will have been given marching orders by the diner order, the owner, that says, if you make a mistake and I go out of business, I'm taking you with me. And so if the lawyer looks at what you were thinking to, your, to say to your friend over lunch, and decides that maybe it's a risk, they would just suppress it. So obviously that is not a good way to run a forum for speech, even a private forum for speech. Now, it's not a perfect analogy because people who mutter things in a diner don't sometimes have them overheard by 10 million people when they go viral. And so that is a, a, a dimension to this that is um, unique to the internet and doesn't have a direct analogy. But the speech aspect is likewise important, right? The part, that, the part where people talk to each other is likewise important. And if we were to upend the safe harbors of the Communications Decency Act and say, you may only speak 
once uh, you have assured yourself that um, nothing that you say will violate a law, then the ability to speak will be limited to people who use expensive platforms that can afford to pay the lawyers and who can somehow afford to subsidize uh, those platforms' use of counsel. It will become pay-to-play pay speech, which is basically how cable works, right? If you, if you turn on cable TV, because copyright is what's called a strict liability regime, which means that anyone who uh, is complicit in the violation of a copyright, even if they act in good faith, can be sued by the rights holder, the cable operators want to make sure that um, they're not the people with the deepest pockets if they air some programming that violates copyright, because then they'll be the targets for the lawsuit. And so anything that you want to say in um, narrative form, right, anything that isn't live TV, and live TV it's a different story, but anything that isn't live TV, every word is vetted by a lawyer. And then, again, it's vetted by an insurance company that writes you an errors and omissions policy to make sure that the lawyer hasn't made any mistakes. And the number of people who are able to speak using cable, numbers in the thousands or perhaps tens of thousands, if you add up all the people who get to make a final decision about what is said, on cable. And that's the approximate limit of how much speech our society can afford to vet before it's uttered. And if you're comfortable limiting our total public discourse to 10 or 20 or even 100,000 people worldwide, then by all means get rid of the safe harbors. But otherwise, you're, the price that we pay for the safe harbors is that we don't pay lawyers to evaluate all speech before it's spoken, and so sometimes speech that is unlawful is uttered. Now, does that mean that, the, that, that we have to just take it uh, as it comes and, and uh, not um, try and make it better? Of course not. And there are lots of ways that we can improve this. You know, Clay Shirky many years ago said, if you're struggling with uh, information overload, you don't have a, a content problem, you have a filter problem. Now, the answer to that is to like have a service that's a rival to Facebook, that slurps in the stuff that's useful to you from Facebook, throws away the stuff that Facebook is using to hijack your attention. That's a business that some people would pay for. That's a business you might be able to support with less odious advertising. It's a business that people might set up as a nonprofit. The problem is that if you do any of those things, you will get sued into a, a smoking crater by Facebook, who have secured a series of um, legal decisions and laws that protect its right to not be interoperated with by third parties without its permission. So I, I'm a little bit curious then what a solution to Alex Jones would be. Do we just let him exist in the marketplace of ideas? Do we let the courts handle the lawsuits which have taken seven years to get to the point where they are um, and are still unresolved? What, what can we do about speech that the, is that odious on these platforms? So there's a great science fiction story that really frustrates me called The Cold Equations. And in The Cold Equations, there's a spaceship pilot who is delivering vaccines to a distant frontier world where a, a plague is broken out that's going to kill everybody on the planet. And he takes off and he's cruising towards this planet and he realizes he's burned more fuel in his takeoff than he should have. And it's because his ship is heavier than it was uh, fueled for and he starts to look around and he finds a girl who's stowed away. And when she's caught, she says, I guess he got me. When we get to this other world, uh, you'll have to assess a fine because, you know, I violated the rule. And he is aghast because 
when he realizes that this girl is on the ship, he also realizes that since she can't land the ship, and since there isn't enough fuel to land the ship with both of them in it, and since if they don't land the ship, everyone on the planet is going to die of this epidemic, that he's going to have to push her out of the airlock. And the rest of the story is him just explaining to her why he's going to have to push her out of the airlock, why it's inevitable that he push her out of the airlock. And the thing about the cold equations that drives me crazy is it's a setup. Because within the scenario that was developed by the author, absolutely, he has to push her out of the airlock. But the choices that went into that scenario were not inevitable, right? The choice to not have an autopilot, to not have extra fuel, to not have vaccines stockpiled on this distant world. These are all choices that were made before the story started. And if all you consider is the story from the moment it starts, then it just seems like it's a sad but inevitable fact of the universe. That's why it's called the cold equations, because it's supposed to be about math, not morals. It's a sad but inevitable fact of the universe that this girl has to die. And the reality is that if you want to stop the girl from dying, the thing you need to do is start before the beginning of the story and think about how you can fix it. Once you start in the situation where people are so alienated from each other that Alex Jones' hateful message can find fertile ground with one another, where our rules regarding money as speech, which is very different from regarding talking on the internet as speech, have created a dominance for the gun lobby that allows them to peel off some of their excess capital and use it to fund, on the one hand, propaganda like Alex Jones, and on the other hand, laws that preserve uh, the right of people to do things with guns that are really terrible. And when you have media consolidation in many dimensions, both in, in terrestrial radio, where, where Jones got to start, and on the internet, that uh, allows people to bootstrap their uh, small victories into much larger victories and creates a winner-take-all economy, then, of course, it seems hard to imagine how you could sort out the Alex Jones problem without some implications for speech. That's true. I, I don't know how to solve the Alex Jones problem without implications for speech, but I know how we stop the next Alex Jones problems without implications for speech. And that's what we address these other things. Monopolism, uh, inequality, money in politics. All of those things are things that are actually not particularly hard to imagine how to deal with them. They might be hard to imagine how we'll make them politically palatable. They're not challenging problems to imagine solutions to. Just, you know, figuring out who bells the cat might be a little harder. One more question for you. Are our politics problems technology problems in the year 2018? So Larry Lessig, he says that everything in our world is regulated by four forces. Code, that's like what's techno technologically possible. Law, what's legally allowed. Norms, what's considered socially acceptable. And markets, what's profitable. Those forces bear in different degrees on different problems, but every problem can be unpicked on those four axes. So our political problems are obviously in some ways legal problems. They're in some ways technological problems. They're in some ways problems about our prevailing ideologies. And in some ways problems about what people can make money from. Because, you know, one of the reasons Alex Jones is as successful as he is, is because it, it made him rich. And so, yes, of course, technology is part of all of this stuff. And, and because the internet is the nervous system of the 21st century and wires together all of our activities, and because everything we do today involves the internet and everything we do tomorrow will require the internet, then of course all of our problems are technological problems. 
but they're not only technological problems. But at the same time, if we don't get the technology right, we probably can't solve any of these problems. Like climate change is a bigger problem than free speech on the internet. But unless we have a free, fair, and open internet, we're never going to be able to organize to do something about climate change. All right, Cory Doctorow, thank you so much for your time. Oh, well, thank you very much. It's been really good to talk to you, and I really like the kinds of significant and challenging questions you had. That's it for Bots and Ballots from Yahoo News. Please find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks this week to Cory Doctorow. I'll just mention that his latest book is called The Walk Away, and you can find more of his writing on Boing Boing, where he is a blogger and editor. And thank you to Leah Hitchens, my producer. I'm Grant Burningham. Thanks for listening.